And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. So here you see him start out with a sin of the people that the people are now presenting to God uh, a sacrifice that is blind and then it progresses to lame and sick. I mean, at first blind, maybe you could pass that off as a, as a, a, a good sacrifice, but then lame and, and then sick. I mean, they're getting to the bottom of the barrel that they're providing the Lord for the sacrifices. And, and their response are always, how have we done anything wrong here, right? How have we despised your name? How have we polluted your table? Uh, that's their attitude toward God. Well, why would the people do this? Why would the people offer up something that is less than the best of what they have? Why would they, why would they ever consider that to be okay? Notice he says, you wouldn't do that to your governor. How could you do that to me? After all that God's done for them, how could they decide that he's unworthy of the best that they have to offer. Well, look at verse 13. Notice what they say. He says, But you say, What a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. What a weariness this is. That's their attitude toward offering up sacrifices to God. What a weariness this is. This is, this is such a, a pain to have to come and to bring a sacrifice for the Lord over and over again. Why do we have to do this? Why is this uh, uh, something that God wants from us and, and what, He's not doing anything for us? Anyway, why, what does this accomplish? You know, they're not, they're not seeing any fruit from what they're doing here. And they're, they're, they're upset about this. So, so the people are offering up what is lame and what is sick because ultimately they're just tired of serving God. They've had enough. They don't, they don't see the, the pros of doing this and they're struggling with why it's worth it. But also we see in chapter 2, as we continue on, that the, the basis for all of this is really the, the priests and what the priests have done uh, in the absence of the promises that have been given. In verse 7 it says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The people are not offering the sacrifices they should because they're just tired because they don't understand why they're doing it. They're just coming together and offering stuff and they don't really see the benefit. What's the point in this? Because the priests are never teaching them. It's no wonder they say, how have you loved us? When God says, I have loved you. The priests have never taught them who they are. And why they're here. And why they need to offer these sacrifices. And what God has done for them throughout history. And so they say, what a weariness this is. 
This is, this is, this is getting old and, and tiring. We're not receiving the promised blessings that have been made so long ago. And we're just sitting here under Persian rule. And life is hard and it's not going well for us. What is the point of all this? I'd like to stop and think about this for a second. Do we ever follow this example? Do we ever offer God less than our best, thinking, what a weariness this is? <laughs> you know, it's it's nine o'clock. I'm I'm tired. I don't want to go. I don't want to go to church services. I don't want to. I don't want to build up anybody. You know, it's just not that much fun to me. But I'll go because I have to go. Well, that's pretty lame, right? <laughs> that's kind of a lame sacrifice we can give. And, and whenever we get here, we can think, well, I would much rather be at home, uh, you know, doing these hobbies or these things that I would rather be doing. And that's that's lame. That's not offering God our best. And and even whenever we're out in the world, right? We're living sacrifices. We're we're offering sacrifices every day. Uh, if we're doing something kind for someone else, but we're begrudging the fact, thinking, I've got to do this because God will be happy with me if I do it. It's lame. It's, it's, a, it's a, a lame offering to God. And, and is God happy about that? Is God happy with us offering Him less than our very best whenever we come together or whenever we're out working for Him? Is He okay with that? Is that a good thing for us to do? At least we're doing it, right? Notice how he talks about this. He says, how, how you have despised my name. That's the way he words it. You have despised my name. That's the picture. We might we might just pass over this thinking, you know, we're having a bad day. Uh, God will understand. It's no big deal. So, so what if we didn't really prepare to come to worship services or have a real heart that was in anything that we were doing? God will be okay with that. But the way God puts it is, you've, dis- you've despised me. And the way He words it is, as a son honors his father and a servant his master, then I am a father. Where is my honor? You know, the understanding of all that God has done for His people is supposed to cause them to worship Him with all their heart and with the best of what they have. They're supposed to have an understanding of how much God has blessed them in the past and how much God has given to them. And that's supposed to provoke in them a, a desire to worship. They should not be begrudging. In fact, he says in chapter 1, verse 10, I wish someone would come into this temple and shut the doors. Because I'm sick of these sacrifices. These are no good. I don't want anything to do with this. After all that God's done to rebuild this temple and to bring His people back, now He says, shut the doors. I don't want your sacrifices anymore. You see the strong statements from God here. You continue in chapter 2 and verse 3. Notice what he says to the priests. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Yuck. (laughs) That's disgusting. But you see how he is, he feels as though the the offense is so great that he wants to uh, punish them in this way, that he would spread the dung of these offerings on their faces and make them appear as ugly and unclean as they really are. You imagine uh, God doing that to us as we 
as we offer lame sacrifices. I mean, that's, that's a horrible picture. And he goes on to say in verse 9 that uh, I'm going to make you despised and abased in front of all the people. So God, who is now being despised, is now going to make the priests, who are supposed to be teaching the people and helping the people understand His love for them, He's going to make them despised. So that's, that's the first main uh, sin of the people. But he doesn't end there. He continues in verses uh, 10 through 16 with another sin that the people commit. And I'd like to read verse uh, 13 and 14. He says, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Here we see the second sin that the people are guilty of. And, and, and the, the part of the reason behind all of their feelings of weariness, this isn't worth it, we see in this text as well, because they're not getting anything. They're not being blessed. They don't, they don't find favor from the Lord. Maybe they're going through a drought or some kind of suffering. The curses are upon them. And they're thinking it's not worth it to serve the Lord. And they're trying to figure out why. And he says, because you've been faithless toward your spouse. Does God consider the way we treat each other in His calculation of whether His people are faithful to Him? Absolutely. His people cannot say, I love you and I'm faithful to you, and then turn around and be hateful toward their spouse, or uh, as he continues to say, divorce their spouse. The picture is that they are being uh, evil toward their spouse and, and breaking that covenant, that marriage covenant that was made between them. And as he says, they're going off and marrying foreign wives. As Jews, you would be given an arranged marriage, but you're entering into a covenant relationship with this wife that is supposed to be for the rest of your life. And here they have just turned their back on the covenant that they have been given. And, and God says, I no longer accept your sacrifice if you're going to treat your, your spouse that way. So the picture here is very clear that God wants us to love Him with all of our hearts and then also He wants us to love our neighbor. But in this case, He points to a very specific neighbor. He points to our spouse, the one that we're closest with. And He says, if you're not willing to love her, then you don't truly Love me. It's obvious throughout Scripture that God cares about how we treat our spouses. This is a big deal to God. He's not okay with divorce. In verse 16, um, a lot of translations put, uh, God hates divorce. And in the ESV it says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, uh, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. And the, the wording there is kind of difficult, but the idea is the same either way, that, that the man who divorces his wife is, is doing a great evil against God, and God hates that kind of evil being done against someone who He is loving and trying to help. His people. 
And God has always felt this way, and He does. He feels that way also in the New Testament. We see in the book of 1 John the same idea. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a, a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The picture is very evident that if we say we love God and we hate our brother, that God considers us to be a liar. And this is a command that God that God desires for us to love one another as He has loved us. And that's not an easy command by any means. But that's the command that God is desiring from us. In First Peter, he tells the wives to be subject to the husbands. And then he says to the husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. And at the end he says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If we're unwilling to, to live with our spouses in a way that is uh, as God would have us to live then it affects our relationship with Him. Faithlessness to our spouse is equivalent to faithlessness with our God. And that's the picture that He gives us here. So how do we view our spouses? You know, are we, are we willing to uh, bear with them and be patient and loving toward them even when they don't deserve it? Even when they're, they're doing things that are obviously wrong, are we willing to be patient and loving toward them? Are we willing to endure according to the vows that we've made? We vow to one another to honor, to love, honor, and cherish in sickness and in health for better or for worse until death do we part. Are we willing to be faithful to those vows? God expects us to. And our relationship with Him is contingent on our faithfulness to our spouse. He continues, and we see in verse 17 a key text, a key transition point, going going on and on about the sins of the people to kind of relaying a final message of, of sin that kind of summarizes the people and sets up the next section. Verse 17, he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied Him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? You see in this the, the utter rebellion of the people that they are, they are now accusing God of evil, of delighting in those who are evil. You see how they progress from saying, how have you loved us, to saying, you are unjust and you are a lover of evil. And that's their progression throughout this text. That not understanding God, not understanding the love of God, results in unfaithfulness to one another, and it results in an attitude that is that is completely wrong. It kind of reminds me of a teenager, right? All these questions are like a rebellious teenager who's like, well, how have you done this? It's like you, you have no clue about all the things that, that have been done or about how right your parents are. We've all been there. And then you're, you're proclaiming to the parent... You don't know anything. And the parents just like, you're, you're wearying me. You're wearing me out. Notice they said at the beginning, we're weary of serving God. And now God says, you're, we- you're wearying me. You're wearying me. What a sad statement that God would show such incredible love 
and that in response his people would weary him. So they say, where is the God of justice? And this is what God says in verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In verse 5 he says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. The picture is that he is sending a messenger before him and then he is coming to his temple for judgment. That's not a good picture. There's some grace in that, right? I'm sending a messenger before me to prepare the way. That's, a, that's an, an opportunity that he's given. But whenever he comes, there will be judgment. It's a terrifying idea that God is coming to judge. And, and the picture is that you think I love evil. Well, you're going to see how much I hate evil. And you think you want me to judge those who are evil? Well, you know, I'm going to judge everybody who is rebellious and evil. And that would include you who are being rebellious and evil against me. That's the picture that he gives. And then he goes on in verses 8 through 12 to say, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, How have we robbed you in your tithe? Ties and contribution. Here he says, uh, it seems like he's bringing up another sin, but really he's explaining himself in this text. You think about this for a second. Uh, The people have robbed God by refusing to give tithes. Does that really rob God of anything? It's all his to begin with, right? So it's not really that it's robbing God in the way that that we might interpret this, that God has money and he wants his money and he's going to give wrath if he doesn't get the money that he really wants. That's not really the picture. Uh, You know, the picture is, as you continue, that he wants to give them everything. In fact, he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. The picture is, I just want you to give me a little bit. I just want you to give me the, the 10% that I've, that I've commanded you. I want you to give me the first fruits. I want you to give me the best that you have. And you're going to see that all of your needs will be taken away. He says, put me to the test. See if I will not bless you abundantly beyond what you deserve. He's a God who wants to give them everything, but they are handcuffing Him by being rebellious. Because God cannot show them the love, the blessings that are part of His love if they are at the same time doing great evil. That would make Him unjust. And He can't be unjust. You see, the people are just blind to their own rebellion. And really, what they're robbing God of is is joy. He wants to show that He loves His people He wants to have a relationship with them. He wants to share with them every good thing. And He wants them to be a blessing to the whole earth. But their rebellion is is bringing God down and robbing Him. Look at verse 13. It says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said, It is vain to serve God. 
What is the profit of our keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. The picture is that they're serving God and it's vain. It's useless. There's no point in it. That's the way they feel about this. But the picture God's given them is, you're not really serving me. The, the, the troubles that you're going through are the result of the way that you're serving me. They're serving God as though He is some great uh, bank that's just going to shower blessings on them if they just make Him happy and they just satisfy His wrath. That He's now going to pour out the blessings on top of them. Like that's the way He wants to be worshipped and served. Well, do we ever think about God this way? Do we serve God in order to get more blessings? That's their attitude. That's the way they're approaching God. It's vain to serve God. He's not giving us anything. <laughs> How many people do we know that say, Oh, I tried the God thing and, and it didn't work out for me. <laughs> My prayers weren't answered. I didn't get what I really wanted out of that. And so it's not really worth it. Well, let's notice the example of Job who, having everything taken away from him, was still willing to say, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job served God for nothing. And that's the way that God wants us to serve Him, to love Him. Not because of what we get out of Him, but because of what He has already done for us and and who He is and how deserving He is of our love. And that's the picture that we get. This is the message that we get from from this book. But then we transition again in verse 16. He says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasure possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve. The picture here is that God is going to pay attention to those who turn and serve Him. Those who hear these words and decide that they will fear the Lord, that they will serve the Lord, even if it doesn't appear that they're going to get anything out of it, that they will serve the Lord and be faithful to Him because of what He's revealed about Himself throughout all of the Old Testament. And he says, if you'll do that, then I will give you all of these promises. And listen to the kind of things he promises. He says, they shall be mine. They will be my treasured possession. A book of remembrance will be written for them. They shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked because the ultimate day of judgment will come and they will stand with the righteous and see, as he continues... They will see the sun of righteousness rise with healing in its wings. Verse 2 of chapter 4. And you shall go out like leaping calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The picture at the end of this is that you are going to be greatly blessed and you're going to you picture a calf jumping and rejoicing about freedom and all the joy that, that has been given to him because of uh, the one who let him loose, the one who gave him the freedom, the one who blessed him with that opportunity. 
And that's, that's the picture of those who fear the Lord. That they will go out rejoicing and enjoying the blessings that God has given. Well, the last few verses are the final verses of the Old Testament. Okay, so, so consider, these are the last words from the Lord for 400 years before the messenger will come. Verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Notice those last two words. He ends it with utter destruction. He tells the people, I want you to remember the law of my servant Moses. This goes back to the problem that's been throughout this book. The people have forgotten what God has done for them. The book of the law are the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And, and in that you see the picture of God's love for His people as He redeems them from slavery. And He provides for them all the blessings uh, that, that are the promised land. If they'll just accept it, but they rebel and they rebel and they rebel. And He has to punish them for that rebellion. Yet He forgives and He loves them. You see, the people forget that all too easily. And they start to question God's love for them. But He's made it clear. He has loved them. And He will love them as time goes on. They have been evil. He has destroyed them. And He has brought them back. He has shown His steadfast, faithful love endures forever. He is is faithful to the covenant that He has made. And he says, I'm going to send that messenger before me. And this time he specifies, I'm going to send Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's going to be the preparation. That's going to make sure that you're ready for this day, that you don't fall into this utter destruction. It says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come strike the land. And and that's not what he wants to do. It's pictured here. I don't want to destroy you, but if you are unwilling to turn, then that's how it's going to be. That's how it's going to have to be in order for Him to maintain justice. He is going to have to come and bring utter destruction on those who rebel against His love. He offers out all the love He can give in Jesus. And if they rebel against that, then judgment has to come. It's just... Has to happen. There's no way around it. So this is the book of Malachi. What a fascinating book, right? Just tons of information. A very deep book. A lot, a lot to see. Well, what's what's the message here for us as we study this book? Well, obviously, there's a demonstration of God's love for us, and that that being the foundation for our belief in Him. Everything falls apart when the people don't see how God loves them. We need to be a people who understand the love of God, who are constantly uh, becoming familiar with how God has loved His people and how He has loved us in providing us with all the blessings that He provides us. 
they, they give up on God because they fail to see His love. And that's a danger for us as well. If we stop seeing God's love, then we are tempted to fall away and to start being unfaithful to our, our friends, our spouses, those around us, be hateful to them, and be unfaithful to God and offer up God less than our best. But ultimately, the message here is found back in chapter 3, verse 6, where he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The message of Malachi is, God is not the one who changes. We are. We are. It's not Him. He has loved us consistently, patiently, steadfastly, all the days of our lives. And we are the ones who have rebelled against Him and who are are the ones who are deserving of great punishment and suffering in this life and in the life to come. But it's not God's fault. If things don't go our way, it's not God's fault. If, If we are ultimately judged as evil in the end because we've rebelled against God, it's our fault. It's not God's fault. We can easily go from an ignorance of what God has done to a rebellion against God if we forget about His love, but but God still loves us even though we do that. No matter how far we wander, no matter how far we stray from God, He is desiring for us to come back to Him. That's the picture of Luke 15, right? The, The shepherd who has lost his sheep. That He desires to find the sheep, to bring the sheep back into the fold. He still loves us. He sent His messenger to prepare the way and He came into His temple and and God Himself taught in the temple and, and tried to help the people turn their hearts and then He died as a sacrifice that we might not suffer utter destruction. That we might be faithful to Him. I have loved you declares the Lord. Have you loved me? That's the question of the book. If we're honest with ourselves, we've all fallen short in our love for God. We've brought forward less than the very best that we can offer Him, even though He has shown us immense love beyond what we deserve. But God is always there waiting even though we despised Him, and even though we've been faithless uh, to, to our spouses and to those around us and not loved as we should, He's always there asking for us to return to Him and be faithful once again. So what are you going to do? Uh, are you going to make that change? Are you going to be devoted to God and serve Him faithfully? We hope you will. We hope we can help you in any way that you'll come forward at this time as we stand and sing.